you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and Hulu's Dimension 404 in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology, as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, or send me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And also, if you want to help support the podcast, uh, the best way to do that would be to go to iTunes and leave a quick review. It helps out the podcast a lot and increases the visibility of the podcast in iTunes' interface and everything. And you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal by clicking the donate button on anthologypod.com. And finally, you can go to the Obsessive Viewer TeePublic store at tpublic.com and type in Obsessive Viewer to get uh, official anthology merchandise and obsessive viewer shirts and stuff like that. The anthology shirts look really good. Um, so go buy one and uh, help support me. <laughs> Any and all donations and purchases and everything made uh, goes directly toward keeping the podcast running and is incredibly appreciated. Today I'll be discussing The Howling Man. It's the fifth episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it aired on November 4th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on Alex Garland's Ex Machina from a couple years ago. Um, But first, I do have a quick email I want to read from a new listener. Um, This new listener uh, said... I'm loading it now... (laughs) Uh, hi, Matt. I just found your podcast and I'm enjoying it very much. I've seen every episode of The Twilight Zone at least twice and with a recap, it all comes back. It's great to hear some background about the actors, directors, and story, as well as your opinions and analysis. I like how you structured the podcast, covering different episodes in a similar format each time. Thank you for doing this. And uh, thank you to that new listener. And I appreciate the email. Of course, you can email me at mattatobsessiveviewer.com. And before I get into the review and everything, I will read a uh, synopsis of this episode, courtesy of Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And of course, this uh, synopsis and the full review is going to be extremely spoiler heavy. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, go check it out and then come back and listen to this episode. One dark and stormy night a few years after the First World War while traveling through Central Europe, David Ellington finds himself seeking shelter at a European monastery. There, Ellington is introduced to the Brothers of Truth, keepers of the hermitage who are holding a man against his will. Brother Jerome claims their captive is the devil himself, and the constant howling and shrieks are coming from the dark corridors originating from the prisoner, his own form of torture against his captors. Jerome also explains that since the capture, there have been no world wars, 
pestilence, plague, or unnatural disasters. The prisoner, however, looks nothing like the devil. Alone with Ellington, he tells a mournful tale of his capture and pleads with the visitor to help him get free. Having heard both sides of the story, Ellington chooses to act. Waking in, waking in the middle of the night, he steals the keys and grants the, capture, the captive freedom by removing the staff of truth from the door, and is shocked to witness a transformation before his eyes. Before he could be caught again, Satan, now in his true form, vanishes in a puff of smoke, leaving Ellington a burden to bear, knowing he released the devil back into the world. Many years later, after World War II and the Korean War, a much older Ellington has finally caught up with the howling man and warns his servant to ignore the howling and leave the door locked until he returns with the brothers from the monastery. The old woman, also skeptical, waits until her master leaves before opening the door. All right, The Howling Man stars John Carradine as Brother Jerome. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in an episode of Night Gallery in the segment titled Big Surprise. Um, he also appeared in an episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone in the segment called Still Life. Um, he was known for Grapes of Wrath, Stagecoach, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Um, he actually claimed near the end of his life to have appeared in more movies than any other actor, um, which is quite a feat. He had more than 300 films uh, to his credit, uh, which is insane. <laughs> um, co-starring as David Ellington is H.M. Wynant. Wynant? Wynant? Um, this is his only episode of the Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in Nightmare at Ground Zero, uh, which I covered as a bonus review in episode 14 of the podcast, uh, written by Serling. And he was also in The Comedian, which I reviewed in episode 30 of the podcast. And he was also in two episodes of One Step Beyond, and he also appeared in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. So there's a tangential Rod Serling connection there. Um, and then finally, he also appeared in an episode of The Next Step Beyond, which surprised me because I had no idea that that existed. It was a uh, an update of One Step Beyond that was in the 1970s. It apparently ran for 25 episodes. So that's kind of kind of interesting. I had no idea that that existed. And rounding out the cast is Robin Hughes as the Howling Man. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did also appear in an episode of Rod Serling's The Loner. And he was also in one episode of One Step Beyond. Um, and a piece of trivia about Robin Hughes is that he served in the Royal Navy during World War II. It was actually transferred from uh, the HMS Hood just before it was, it was sunk by the German battleship Bismarck. So that's pretty interesting. Writer for this episode was Charles Beaumont. This was his fifth out of 22 episodes that he wrote for the, for the show. His next one is Static, which will be uh, later this season. And this story in particular was originally published in the November 1959 issue of Rogue. Um, he published that under the pen name of C.B. Lovehill. And it was later reprinted in Beaumont's short story collection, Night Ride and Other Journeys, in 1960. And director for this episode was Douglas Hayes. This was his sixth episode of nine. Uh, his next one will actually be next week's Eye of the Boulder, which I'm really excited for. And uh, a little bit of trivia about him in regards to this episode is that uh, as a kid, he was a huge fan of movies like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein, and uh, Dracula. And he used those influences in the creation of this episode. 
So, okay, going into my review of The Howling Man, um, my thoughts on the episode before, like my, my, uh, what I knew about the episode before going in was very little. Uh, given the title, The Howling Man, I kind of assumed that it would have something to do with werewolves or at least a werewolf. Um, but I had no, I, I, that was my only, that was my, that was only based on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, title of the episode. And I knew that they had used the visual effects, the same visual effect technique that they used in long, uh, long live, uh, Walter Jameson, um, in this episode. And I just assumed that it had something to do with the transformation into a werewolf. And I had also known that this episode had a different tone than other episodes, or at least that's what I had heard through the, uh, grapevine. Um, so I was pretty surprised with, with what we got and pleasantly surprised at that because I mean, this, this storyline was really cool. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this, uh, this plot line, um, and, and how it unfolded. Um, so the initial thing that it, when the episode opens, the first thing I noticed was just the use of Dutch angles throughout pretty much most of the episode uh the the camera is tilted quite a bit um throughout it and i really liked that in this in this context because it was very disorienting and and very much uh skewed perspective and everything it was it was it was really uh, good for the overall tone of the episode and when the episode opened with Ellington just staring directly into the camera, just telling us that he was going to tell us the entire story and everything, um, against a backdrop of a window with a, with rain and thunder and everything in the background, I thought for quite a bit until we got the flashback, I really thought that this was, that he was an actor and that he was performing on, on stage. For us, um, I thought it was going to go down a route where he was. It was going to be like either an actor on on stage or or in a scene uh, for a TV show or movie, and then we would get kind of a a story where he's in between scenes, kind of like a, a world of difference. So imagine my surprise when uh, we get a flashback to a monastery and and like a, a castle setting. Um, which I thought that that was a really unique and kind of different um, setting for for the Twilight Zone, and it was very, I mean, it was very the ambiance of it was really impactful and really really strong. I really liked it. And as Ellington walks through it, and the camera tilts and and follows him along as people are kind of gathering around him in it, that was a very very striking image uh, for us to come into this, to this new setting in, in this, uh, this story. I really liked it. Kind of felt like, and granted, I will preface this by saying that I'm not too familiar with this type of horror, but it kind of felt like a kind of Gothic horror influence in it. Um, just with, just with the, the way that the, uh, setting was, was designed and everything just felt kind of Gothic and, and horror. Um, and, in the sound of the howling man, like, oh, like I, I loved that. I thought that that was really great. The, the way that, I mean, it's, it's really unsettling. It's not like, it's not like howls of pain per se, but it's more like one of desperation and, and sorrow. And it's just like, it really gets under your skin and, uh, it, it really helps, 
helps bring us into uh, David's di- uh, dilemma in this episode and how we are just as lost as he is or how we we need to determine um, which side is right and which side is wrong um, along with him. And so throughout the episode, we get a back and forth between David and the Howling Man and then David and Brother Jerome. And it's clear like like each side is trying to win him over. Um, uh, Brother Jerome is explaining to him that the Howling Man is the devil and that they've captured him there. And uh, he can't let they can't let him go because he is the devil and he will bring about war and 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 devastation and everything. Whereas the howling man is, is trying to get David to believe that the, the monks and the, the brotherhood are just crazy and they've, they've got the wrong guy and that they're insane. And I absolutely loved this dynamic, um, so much, like probably, I mean, honestly, probably my only real complaint or, or issue with the episode is that I, I kind of wish that this was a feature length movie um, because this is such an interesting concept and an interesting morality tale and the manipulation that's played out between, between the devil and, or the howling man slash the devil and David is just really, really top notch. And the fact that all of this unfolds in, in a standard 24, 24 minute, um, episode of the twilight zone is really, really spectacular and, uh, impressive. And it's not like, it's not as black and white as you would think. Um, like the howling man makes a very, a very, uh, compelling point and his point that, okay, well the brotherhood are clearly insane or, or he doesn't even say that's the thing. He says that they're not insane or evil. He says that they're just mad. Um, they're just, they're just crazy. And that is just such a nice, like a uh, subtle manipulation of David because he's, he's tapping into, uh, David's humanity and trying to make it sound like he doesn't, he doesn't blame them or anything, or he's not, he doesn't harbor any ill will toward them. He just thinks that they're crazy. And that's such a nice manipulation, uh, toward David, but it's not like, it's not like the brotherhood are up front with him from the start because brother Jerome tries to make him believe, or it tells him at first that there's no man there. And while he's not technically lying because in his, in his, uh, his phrasing, he's saying that there's no man here because it's the devil, but he kind of makes it sound like David is just crazy and hearing things, at first, which can further be uh, used as ammunition for the Howling Man side of the uh, side of things, because they, uh, Brother Jerome, in the Brotherhood, made him made David think that he was just delusional or hearing things, and and. Uh, it's, it's really, it's, I don't know how else to put it, but it was really interesting the way that this, uh, this triangle, uh, worked out. Um, I really loved the confusion of it because, um, because brother Jerome tries to explain to him that he, he's not hearing anything. He didn't speak to anyone. There was no man there. Um, and I love that it was so confusing and how 
just up in the air it was because I've said this before many times on the show, but I really love those types of episodes where a character's sanity is in question or what they are, their perspective of something is wildly different from what other people perceive. Um, I just really love that dynamic. And this episode flirts with that a little bit without, without going that same route. Um, and it's, it's really effective because it really brings out, um, the, the flaws in brother Jerome's side, um, and helps, helps lead David down to a very, uh, tragic mistake. And so when brother Jerome explains to him that, okay, yes, there is a man there. He is not a man. He's the devil. And he explains the backstory of it and how they've had him there for five years. And, uh, in that he's, he's being kept under guard, um, by the, by the brotherhood and, and the, uh, the staff of truth is keeping him there. Um, that was, that was really good background and that was really good, uh, a really good way to propel the plot forward and, and give David his central moral dilemma. Um, because the question is, is brother Jerome crazy or is the howling man manipulating him? And just really the whole, the whole concept of the entire episode, um, where there are different, uh, different sides trying to manipulate someone into believing something. It's kind of a, a play on good versus evil. It kind of reminded me vaguely of one of my favorite TV shows really of all time, uh, lost. Um, they, they played with a lot of these similar themes and elements, especially in the later parts of the series. And it made me wonder if, if maybe, um, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse and, and the writers were inspired by the twilight zone. I would not be surprised if they were in speaking or going back to talking about the staff of truth. Um, I really like that as, as just a, um, as a prop and as a, um, I, I guess MacGuffin wouldn't be quite accurate, but as just a, just a prop and, and a reason to explain how he's being held captive. Um, it gives the episode kind of a fantasy feel and it, <laughs> a fantasy feel, and it, and it doesn't hurt that, uh, John Carradine kind of has a, has a Gandalfish presence. Um, but I just really like that because it kind of gives it, it, it's not necessarily explained why it's, why that's able to contain him. Um, except that it's hinted at there's some mystical properties to it or, or what have you. Um, I read that originally, and I'll get into this in trivia, but it was originally going to be a cross, um, but they changed it to the Staff of Truth. I just, I like that because it, it, like I said, it gives it kind of a, um, kind of a fantasy element to it while also kind of making, making it, giving it a little bit more mythology um, to it because it's not like, it, it makes it feel like there are, there are forces at work that are above David. Um for just a brief, um, a brief moment, essentially. And the whole idea that the, that the devil being contained is what's keeping the world from having another world war or, uh, or all of these unnatural disasters and everything. Um, I, I think that that is just a really fascinating thing like that. Like that's a really fascinating uh, premise. And, 
knowing that that's part of the plot. And then later on when, after David releases him, um, knowing that he, he must carry the burden of essentially being the one to cause world war two and, and, uh, the Korean war. Like that's, I mean, my God, that burden is ridiculous. Like I, like it's, that's why I kind of wish that this was a feature length movie. Cause I would, I would love to see how, um, how, a, how a character could deal with that burden, um, more heavily and, and with, with a longer runtime. But, uh, given the 24 minutes that this episode had, it, it was really, it was really effective that way anyway. And it got me, it was very thought provoking in that manner. And, I think throughout most of it, I, I just kind of assumed that he was the devil. Um, well, that's not true. That's not true. I, it was, it was definitely up in the air for most of the episode. Um, but once he, <laughs> once David goes to the cell and he, um, he asks why, why he doesn't just lift up the staff of truth like that moment. That was, that was such a great moment because that's him almost realizing like, yeah, he's, there's something there. There's, there's definitely something there. Um, but it's not enough to keep him from, from unleashing the howling man. And I love that leading up to that, all things considered, the howling man just barely speaks to David throughout the entire episode, but he gets enough into his head or he gets deeper into his head. Um, the more that he does talk to him. And I think that that at that point, when I was still trying to figure out whether or not he was the devil, that was, that was pretty hard evidence that he was the devil and manipulating him and everything. Um, and that's, I just, I just love the way that that dialogue is written because it feels so earnest that he is being held captive and he is like, it's very possible that, um, the brotherhood are insane and that they're keeping him held captive against his will and that he's an innocent person. Um, that's definitely possible and plausible in this plot line, but it's just, there's just, there's just enough doubt on both sides where it can be, it's a convincing moral conundrum for David. Like it's, it's, there's just enough there for him to, to really have doubts on either side. And I, I think that that's, Honestly, that's, that's, that's brilliant storytelling, in my opinion. That is, that is absolutely brilliant storytelling, in my opinion, because they could have made this so lopsided or one-sided, and they could have made it so cheesy and, and not authentic, or they could have made it more suspenseful by making it less realistic. But there's just enough here. There's, there's just enough here, um, for it to be really thought-provoking and, and it all comes down to the moment where David um, asks asks the Howling Man if the Staff of Truth is the only reason that that he's being held captive, and he's he's like, yeah. And then he's just like, why why don't you just lift it up? Because <laughs> it's like he can see that like he's shown that he can reach out. Like he, it's not like he's confined too much. Like he reached out and grabbed him grabbed him uh, um, earlier in the episode. But I love the kind of rapid reaction of, of the Howling Man saying like, oh, there's no time. There's no time. Just do it. Just do it. Um, and it's just this, I, the moral center of this is that like human compassion, like, like mankind's compassion is what let the devil loose and caused untold destruction and, and terror um, 
upon the world. And I love that scene. That's kind of the summation of that, of that moral, uh, center of the episode is that, um, uh, it was brother Jerome says to, um, says to David or David says that he didn't recognize him. He, he didn't recognize that he was the devil and that, uh, Brother Jerome says that that's man's weakness and and Satan's strength and that's just a, a very profound thing because like a uh, profound thing to put in this episode and very thought provoking in that we evil can be anywhere like pure pure evil can be anywhere we see on the news all the time like these like horrible human beings that can only be can only be really categorized as evil doing despicable things in it's kind of the classic thing where it's like, Oh, he was such a nice neighbor and, and he was so, you know, he was so, he was so nice and friendly and everything. And no one knows what's, what's simmering underneath him. And this is kind of that same thing played out in this, this really big, uh, uh, uh really big platform here. Um, so then the kind of denouement of the episode after, well, which by the way, hang on, let, let me stop and talk about the actual transformation. Um, I, I loved it. Like it was, it was really cool because like the, the lighting effect that was used in long, uh, uh, long live Walter Jameson. It's not as pronounced in this episode or it's not as like, it's just used just slightly to kind of accentuate uh, some features when he's stroking his, his beard, but it's used to great effect. And then we get this, uh, rolling, uh, dolly shot of, of the devil walking down the, walking down the, uh, corridor and after underneath or behind each pillar as he passes through it, he it's another stage of his transformation, which apparently that was achieved by just having him in different stages walk across and then they pace together, uh, different parts here and there. Um, it was effective. It was, it was great. Uh, the look on Robin Hughes's face throughout it, it's, it's a nice turn. Like, like, and in, in terms of, performances and everything. I think Robin Hughes did a really great job because he really sold the despair of the howling man. And then just in, in just very brief glimpses after he's released, we get the sense like, yeah, he is pure evil. He is the devil incarnate. Um, and then it like, even without like the makeup effects and, and the horns and, and the features and everything as he's walking through it, like just the look on his face and, and the expression that he's, or the emotion that he's expressing in his eyes and his grin is just chilling enough by itself. Um, and I think that that's, that's really commendable for him because it's, he did so much with so little screen time essentially in that, in that very small moment. Um, so then after, so then after all that, we get the denouement of, of, um, David explaining to the assistant or maid or housekeeper, I'm, I'm not sure who it was, but, um, he's explaining to her saying like, this is, this is my story. This is why we cannot let him out of here. Um, I need to go get the brotherhood and, uh, yeah, uh, I'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> um, which I mean, this is one uh, probably one small fault of it because we don't know the context of this. We don't know what his uh, situation is with this woman. Uh, we don't know if she's just a, a hotel maid, and that he's going to go fire off a letter or make a phone call. But I love that. that that's kind of my inclination is that he's going to make a phone call. 
um, because he says that he'll be back in a few minutes. And I love that because it's not like he is telling her to stay there for, for a month when he, when, while he goes to Europe and, and grabs the grabs brother Jerome, it's he's just saying a few minutes so that he can presumably make a call or, or whatever. Um, and even in those few minutes, like the moment after that, like she's, she's almost immediately like there's curiosity there. It's not like she's being manipulated by him, by the devil to open the door or anything. She's just, she has that genuine curiosity and you could maybe read it as her being, uh, her just flat out not believing David and just wanting to be compassionate and let this, let this, uh, this person that's being imprisoned in this room free. Um, either way you read that, that's, that's really powerful on the devil's perspective that, uh, that, uh, that she that she almost immediately lets him out, um, and in this moment, I kind of thought it would be kind of cool if the end of the episode and and I I like the end of the episode. It's it's a it's a strong moment, but I think that it would have been kind of cool if when she opened the door, it just turned out to be a completely different man, in that it just shows that David had gone mad and and had imprisoned someone who wasn't worthy of being imprisoned or anything. Um, that would be more shock value than anything. The way that the episode ended definitely, um, definitely held together well and, and put a nice bow on, on the morality tale of this episode. And yeah, I just, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was, I thought it was really fantastic. Okay. So I have a few pieces of trivia for this episode. Um, this was the first episode of the second season to air that was not written by Rod Serling. Um, and Charles Beaumont had originally envisioned that the monks would keep the devil imprisoned by putting a cross on the front of his door. Um, but the, uh, producers were afraid of backlash from religious groups and, uh, they decided to substitute it with the staff, staff of truth over, uh, uh, but Beaumont had objected to that, but I think that that worked well. I don't know. Like a, a cross is universally recognized. Obviously it's, it's a universally recognized symbol. The staff of truth, I, I off the top of my head, I, I don't, I'm not aware of it. I don't know if it is, um, a religious thing. I don't know what, it, if there's anything there, but from my own personal perspective without Googling it or anything, I just think staff of truth, that's like, has some kind of mystical properties that kind of bring some, um, that brings some, that, that brings about some, some dimensionality to it or to the episode. It, it gives it more, um, interest. Yeah. And I don't think that it had any bearing in, anything real, the staff of truth that is, because when I Googled it, it just, uh, brought up, uh, South Park's, the stick of truth. <laughs> and another piece of trivia is that, uh, Douglas Hayes was also influenced by a similar transformation scene in 1935's werewolf of London for the, uh, transformation scene. So overall, I think that this was just a really strong episode with a really great morality play at the center of it. And it's something that I just, I really enjoyed. Um, and I've said this before, and it's not anything new or anything that anyone, like, it's not anything new, but the Twilight Zone really excels when it's, when it's just a two or three people, um, with conflicting viewpoints and ideologies battling it out. And that's something that was really, 
really strong in this episode. And it's something that I really appreciated about it. And again, it just has a, a really strong moral um, theme to it. That evil is everywhere and, and the devil can be hiding in plain sight. And that human compassion can be its downfall as well. Um, which is a pretty bleak outlook and everything. Um, very bleak, in fact. But then again, this is also a Charles Beaumont episode. So he is kind of um, renowned from what I've seen uh, as having darker episodes. Um, so yeah, so The Howling Man is definitely up there for me as as being one of my favorites of season two so far. I I would love to see this type of story play out in a, in a feature length, um, setting. And if you haven't watched it yet, I would recommend checking out lost because it plays with a lot of these same themes and everything. And, uh, definitely it's, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Okay. So before we move on to this week's bonus review, uh, here's a highlight from episode 192 of the obsessive viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friend tiny along with, uh, the occasional guest co-host over at obsessiveviewer.com. I, I get that, you know, cause in the comic books, he, the ancient one is an old, uh, Tibetan, Tibetan, I want to say, um, yeah, I'm, Tibetan. I'm, I'm willing. Uh, I'm willing to. I'm willing to bet you're right. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> that was good. Um, I, I believe this old Tibetan uh, person, which I believe actually was one of the reasons they changed it, because apparently China is such a huge market with these movies right now. Oh, that, that makes they didn't want to make him a Tibetan. That makes sense. Mom. Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV192. And also, I did start a new podcast under ObsessiveViewer.com called Tower Junkies, where me and Tiny are going to be talking about uh, Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower. You can find more information about that at TowerJunkiesPod.com. All right, so my bonus review this week is for Alex Garland's uh, Ex Machina. Now, Ex Machina came out a couple years ago. Um, it had a wide release in 2015, but it had a, a festival run in 2014. Written, direct, written and directed by Alex Garland, uh, this movie was his directorial debut. Debut, And Alex Garland is previously known for writing, um, collaborating with Danny Boyle by writing uh, 28 Days Later and Sunshine. Two of my favorite movies, honestly. Um, even though the, even though they're more homage to, to, uh, movies in their respective, uh, subgenres, but they, it, they're still spectacular movies in my opinion. Um, uh, this episode, this bonus review actually was, um, uh, was recommended by longtime listener Greg, um, and definitely appreciate it because any excuse I have to watch Ex Machina again, I will take, uh, happily, um, cause it's, it's a fantastic movie. And of course with this episode or with this bonus review, I will not spoil it. Uh, so, so I'll give my kind of broad opinion of the movie and, uh, and then if you haven't seen it, go check it out. 
So the plot summary, according to IMDb, for Ex Machina is a young programmer is selected to participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a breathtaking humanoid AI. So much like The Howling Man, um, Ex Machina is kind of a... um, morality tale uh with three three characters at the center of it um with one one of those three characters kind of trying to determine who to believe or who to trust um in this so you have uh Nathan played by uh Oscar Isaac who he's phenomenal in this movie he's he's fantastic uh he plays the um owner and and genius behind what's essentially Google um, it's in the movie, it's called blue book. It's the, it's the biggest search engine and everything. Um, and he's like a technology, like he's a tech genius. And then you have Caleb who is played by Donald Gleason, who is this programmer that works for the company that wins the, the, uh, opportunity to work with, uh, Nathan to determine if he achieved true AI with Ava, which is the third character in the, in the movie played by, uh, Alicia Vikander. So the movie is set up into different, different sessions with Ava. Um, and as the sessions progress, you get more, more into more in more, uh, you get, you get more of a sense of, of what's going on and, and who to trust and everything as they, as they go through, uh, each session and kind of the shining thing for me in this movie is that there are moments in between each session where Caleb and Nathan are talking about what they're doing and talking about essentially kind of these broad or, or these, uh, these large scale opinions about, about the, the possibility of, of what they're actually attaining. Um, they're talking in kind of, kind of big, big things about how, um, there's a scene where, where they're talking about how, uh, if they did, if he did achieve true AI, then he's, it's just basically the next step of, of evolution. And then, and then there's a great moment where Nathan tells Caleb that, uh, the, the AIs are going to look back on humanity the way that we look back on fossils and, and cavemen and stuff like that. Um, and I, that's, it's the dialogue between Nathan and Caleb throughout the movie is so profound and, and intellectual and, and interesting that I just, I just, I ate it up so much. Like I loved it. Um, and it's, it's, the film is beautiful. Like it's, it takes some clear, um, influence or, or clear, uh, influence from, from Kubrick. Uh, there's definitely some kind of 2001 type of imagery, um, at least in the set design and the way that the, the house that they're, that they're in is, uh, created and, and, uh, figured and, uh, configured. But I think kind of, like all three performers are really impressive. Um, I want to kind of single out Oscar Isaac though, because he is this really fascinating character in this movie. Nathan is very fascinating because he is this, like the first scene with, with K uh, with Caleb meeting Nathan, Nathan's working out and saying that he is, uh, he's really hung over. And then 
Caleb asks him if it was a fun party, and then he just kind of looks at him like there was no party. <laughs> um, and it's kind of it's kind of a funny, like awkward moment, but it's interesting because Nathan is. I get the sense that Nathan is kind of he's he's burdened by what he's created. Um, he is he sees the evolution of, of technology into artificial intelligence as being something that's inevitable. And he is essentially from his viewpoint, he's creating something that's, that's he's, he's, he's creating, he is godlike in that he is creating something that is, that could replace humanity. And he's kind of burdened with that. So he has that kind of layer to the character and Oscar Isaac plays that, kind of troubled genius thing really spectacularly. And the script is wonderful with it as well. Um, Alicia Vikander is phenomenal. She's very, it's very, uh, she's very sympathetic and it's really fascinating to see her speak to Caleb and, and interact with him. And you really get the sense that she's, she's learning as she, as she goes and she's, she's learning how to be human essentially And the visual effects are, are astounding. It's, I think, I think it actually won an Oscar for the visual effects. Um, if it didn't win, it was definitely nominated. Um, and that's, that's great because special effects, they, you, you don't need to have, um, big explosions and, and, uh, like it doesn't need to be just, visual effects craziness and everything. Yes, it did win best visual effects at the, uh, 2016 Academy Awards. But, uh, what's great is that you don't need these big explosion and big action set pieces to be great, to have great visual effects. Um, visual effects are all about, you know, adding to the scene and creating something that's visually stunning. And when you see Ava, when she's essentially a face on a robotic, body with like flesh hands um it's it's really jaw dropping in the way that the movements are are created and the way that she moves around and the the effects of that are just just really really top notch um and just the general aesthetic of the entire episode or episode of the entire movie is just really it's really beautiful because it's it's kind of like honestly ex machina is kind of like a uh it's it's kind of like a like a feature length Black Mirror episode. Um, the technology is like it exists sort of in the present day, but the technology is is really a little bit more advanced. It's it's like tomorrow's technology essentially, and the kind of compound or house that they're in um, has some cool like uh, technology with it and everything. But it's it's understated in that it's not in your face as really advanced technology and, and futuristic. It's just it's just kind of lived in and in, in current day. Um, yeah, and then the way the movie culminates toward the end, it's it's really fantastic. It's such a great movie. I really loved it, and I was so happy to see Alex Garland do something so successfully because um, he. <sighs> his collaborations with, um, with Danny Boyle. So to the, uh, uh, 20, 28 days later, that's such a fun, uh, re reimagining of the zombie film 
and it pays homage to a lot of George A. Romero's work and while still doing something different. And it's really, it's really fantastic. And also the score in that movie is out of this world. Um, and then the next movie they did sunshine is kind of the same thing. It's a space movie that pays a lot of homage to alien and, and other like space, um, movies, but it has this really strong morality at the center of it about, uh, human, like, like God versus science and, and religion versus science and faith versus science. And it has such a great ensemble cast and everything. And it's, it's a really fantastic movie. So coming from those, from being such huge fans of those movies to see this very, very thought provoking and successful, uh, science fiction movie from Alex Garland, where he wrote and directed it is just, uh, it was, it was such a treat. It was such a treat. And I'm super excited to see what he does next. Cause I really, I really admire his work and, uh, let me see what he is doing next. Cause I know that he had something in the pipeline. Okay. And his next movie is called an, uh, annihilation. It's supposed to come out sometime next year, maybe in February. Uh, the plot description is a biologist signs up for a, a dangerous secret exposition expedition <laughs> where the laws of nature don't apply. Um, so yeah, so I'll see that opening weekend because I am such a fan of Alex Garland and the work that he does. Yeah. Oh, and that's apparently the based on the first book in what's called the Southern Reach trilogy. So, <laughs> oh, and Oscar Isaac is going to be in it as well. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so that, that's about, uh, that's about enough or that's about all that I've got for this week's episode of Anthology. Thank you guys for listening. And, uh, if you want to, again, if you want to help support the podcast, uh, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes helps us out a lot. And then also, um, get, you know, a shirt. Cause, um, again, I just like the logo design for anthology. I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. I got it from, um, I got it from podcastdesigner.com and he did such a great job and it looks really amazing on, on a shirt. Um, so go check that out at the, uh, T public store for obsessive viewer. Just go, go and type in obsessiveviewer.com or, um, anthology podcast and, and you'll find it. Um, and then yeah, next week for the net or for the next episode of anthology, um, I'll be reviewing eye of the beholder, uh, which is episode six of season two. It's kind of an iconic episode of the twilight zone. I'm really looking forward to digging into it and, and sharing my thoughts on it. Um, the bonus review for that will be, uh, an episode of Westinghouse Desilu playhouse, uh, called the man in the funny suit, which is a dramatization of the behind the scenes of what happened, um, during the making of, uh, Requiem for a heavyweight. Um, so I'm really excited to, to check that out. That is available in its entirety on YouTube. I will put a link in the show notes and everything. And of course, we are coming to the end of my bonus episode review series of uh, Dimension 404. So go check that out as well if you haven't already. And we don't have a release date for season four of Black Mirror, but that should be coming out before the end of this year. So I should be... Uh, we should be getting those pretty soon, I would think. So, yeah, uh, that'll do it for this episode. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
tickets are on sale now for the fourth annual Shocktober in Irvington presented by the Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Join the hosts of the Obsessive Viewer on October 6th, 2017 at the Irving Theater for a one-night event screening of short horror films including the premiere screenings of the latest film in J.P. Lex's cross-medium elsewhere world universe, the latest film from Snapshot Productions, and much more. Come celebrate the horror genre in the historic Irvington area and meet the filmmakers with live Q&As after each screening. You can also win DVDs and Blu-rays, movie-related party games, horror-themed Funko Pop figures, gift cards to Irvington businesses, and so much more. Tickets are on sale now at shocktoberinirvington.com. All proceeds go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. And whether at the Irving Theater or in your nightmares, we will be seeing you on the 6th of October. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on AnthologyPod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer and just choose one of the Anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at ObsessiveBookNerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.